It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. You know, Kirk, one of the things I love about my life is being a studio director here at the network. And I meet so many different people from all walks of life who are making a difference in this world. Many of the shows we have done here on Get Real, they focus on people who have gone through tough times and came out on the other side, not only a better person, but they have used their struggles and triumphs to help others by giving back. That's what the collective is all about. Today, Kirk and I are here with Rob Best. CEO of the Barbell Saves Project. You know, I have to give a shout out to my buddy, Jason Grandin, and his co-host, Angela Kennedy, for introducing me to Rob. Rob's story caught my attention when he was featured on the lockbox, and then the off-air conversation really drew me in. In his 20s, Rob became addicted to opiates and would spiral out of control for the next decade. At 31, he finally got clean and started down a path of sobriety, fitness, and healthy living. Since then, he has owned several CrossFit gyms and has helped countless people both in fitness and in recovery. Now, the Barbell Saves Project allows him to combine those two passions and do some pretty amazing things in life. So, you know, I am really happy to have both of you here with me today. So welcome, Rob, to uh, Get Real. Right on. Thank you guys for, uh, for having me here. Uh, second time here in the studio. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and excited. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the nervous. Why are you nervous? Because you know, I think you know what, where we're going with this because the after show conversation, when I was sitting over here in my control room listening to you talk to everybody, my ears were perking up because you were talking about some pretty deep, dark shit that you were uh, that you had experienced in those years of uh, your drug addiction, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. So you had overheard us talking more per- about my personal life, uh, and, and this is kind of what we were just talking about uh, in the break room. Is that you know, so often I get I get in into these situations where I'm interviewed and people ask questions about the Marvel Saves Project and you know how can they help, and it's it's that kind of same train of question and answer and question and answer, and. Um, yeah, I've never really given uh, a platform or an opportunity to actually like talk about my actual why? my story like in yeah. depth or like why. Yeah, all this kind of it's just very surface surface stuff that usually comes up. Not here on Get no, Real, not dude. Here. No, no, this, <laughs> this, this is a different train. I in researching you, I did hear some of the interviews you did or one of the interviews you did, and it, it was very surface. And um, yeah, I, we want to dig deeper here. But what's behind the surface? We've had some conversations off the air, and I know Robin's right. You uh, truly are one of the awesome people that come through the doors of this network. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation, but uh, it will be one in which we dig deep. It won't, it won't be a train. Uh, it won't be the uh, easy train. Yeah, right? we don't sugarcoat things here. We really get real. And Kirk and I have laid ourselves open quite often. So... It's your turn as a co-host of Get Real to kind of give us a little bit of your history. I know we were talking off air about certain things growing up. So tell us a little bit about Rob, the young man who 
had some issues back in his childhood and then um, did some uh, pretty crazy bad things to end up in uh, incarcerated. Yes. Uh, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a local boy. I'm from uh, born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I mean, I kind of just cut through my childhood as being it's, it's really it's there's two sides to it. There's I excelled at sports. Uh, I was a I was an excellent baseball player. Um, I have a, a list of you know, small accomplishments as a child, I suppose, where I think we won something like eight state championships in a row. I was in the Junior Olympics. I was, uh, I played almost just in front of the Little League World Series. I mean, like, all these things. Like, I was a star baseball player. Uh, sport and athletic, uh, athletics was always a major part of my life, and I always really excelled and shined in those areas. Now, as a uh, pubescent boy, <laughs> seventh oh, and eighth go. grade. Uh, that's when I really started to, you know, lash out. I started having real problems with authority. Uh, uh, school was always a trouble for me, whether it was, you know, getting bad grades or getting in fights, getting suspended, all that kind of stuff started really happening once I was in about seventh grade. So there was always this battle between showing up to school to pretty much just keep my shit together so that I could play sports. Oh, so hang on a minute. Why? Why? Why why was why was there this battle? Why was why did this start? I had happened? no interest in school whatsoever. I found no I, I mean I was the type ooh, fun story. Why well, you had, talked about being angry and and that sort of thing. Why? Um I, I honestly still to this day don't enjoy doing things that I'm not comfortable with. And I know that's a probably a very common statement for most people, but when there's something I'm not good at or proficient at, I lash out against it. And school's one of those things. Reading. Let's is, take is, reading. Is it, is it the judgment of others? Yeah, maybe it's, a, maybe it's something to do with I'm afraid of being judged or right, not being labeled as excellent. So when the D's and the F's pour in and he's a troubled student who, who has bad reading comprehension, he's a terrible speller, like all those thoughts are going through my head. And so school's just a place where... I'm falling behind in mathematics. And as we know, like math is progressively, you know, it's this progressive system where the truth is by eighth grade, I'm, I'm at like a fifth grade or sixth grade level, but I've just been skipped along because I'm, I'm socially, uh, I, I seem more socially ahead and I, I'm almost able to just kind of talk my way through all these things, but it really starts to catch up to me right around eighth grade. So now I'm getting very insecure at school for my inadequacies. I'm, I'm like I said, I, I just, it, it's still to this day something it would it would bring me a lot of fear to enroll in a in a college course you know like I would be real hesitant to do that because I still fear my own inadequacy my ability to write a paper uh, I, I, my wife would tell I'm I'm a terrible speller it's these kind of things that I'm afraid of um, but I know I excel at sports and athletics so I have to show up to at least get by at school but it's a it's the type of thing where you know, I, I fake being sick all the time or I, I rub Vaseline in my eyes and come out of the bathroom and I'm like, you know, I'm a mess, mom. I can't go to school. I mean, I, the, the extents that I'll go to avoid going to school where I'm so uncomfortable are, are you know, pretty insane. And uh, it's early on. My, my first experience with alcohol is in eighth grade. I get into my parents' liquor cabinet and I chug a bottle of uh, Cuddy Shark, which is gin or something. Old school. Let me ask you something. Did you feel like you got a love from your a lot of love from your parents due to your athletic achievements yes and not for your who you really were as a person 
No, I think that uh, my mom and dad are, they're low levels, they're lovers. Like I, I, would, I often would explain that my childhood was like Disneyland. Like every day there was such an emphasis on, you know, making the day happy, whether that was like going to McDonald's or letting me stay up late to watch TV or indulging us with desserts or, you know what I mean? Like it was a very enabling type household. Um, it was super fun to live in <laughs> because it was anything goes. And, but then that started to add up once, you know, life demanded a little bit more responsibility from me. And now only now as a, as a, as a grown up who's, who's studied this stuff, do I realize like that's what was going on. Like I wasn't prepared to handle this, this level of responsibility. And uh, I mean, I'm not pointing blame at my mom and dad directly. I'm just saying that this was, this is what it was like growing up in that house it was like, it was more about, hey, he's kicking ass, he's excelling at sports, you know, he's the, he's the quarterback, he's the baseball player, um, you know, C's get degrees type thing, like don't worry, don't worry about school. But here I am, but they don't realize, like I'm really struggling with insecurity and low self-esteem. That's my problem. They're like, the guy on the baseball field looks super confident and he's, right? He, right. That, so there's a, that's why I say there's this, I get it, like, I got two kids of my own, you know, and I can see that, that, you know, if you, if you see your kid as a star athlete, well, then he must be okay. Look at him. He's excelling at sports. He's the best player on the team. Why would there be anything wrong with him mentally or behaviorally? Whatever's going on with him at school is just a phase and he'll grow out of it. So sports was a mask for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you can imagine if, if I wasn't that athlete, then I would just be this delinquent kid smoking cigarettes in the bathroom. You know, this emo kid, probably I would have had my nails painted black and long black hair. And my parents would have been like, holy shit, <laughs> this kid's got problems. Let's get him to therapy. But that's, not, that's just not my story. You know, it was just every year it was like the whole school thing and, and that'll, that'll pass. And, and it's my fault, too. Like, I never came to my parents and said, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling mentally. It was only like total defiance because I could never admit that I was wrong. I could never admit that I was feeling insecure or well, any we of those don't, things. We don't, as parents, have those conversations with our children. And it, children don't feel like they can go to their parents. And sometimes our parents just don't want to hear what we have to say when we're kids talking to our parents. And that's probably a lot of what you're talking about. You know, you don't feel comfortable enough being able to say, hey, mom, dad, I'm struggling. But look at me, I'm, I'm batting it out of the park. I'm hitting home runs. And that, I understand that philosophy, you know, that whole thing. Let's just Go where it's comfortable and not worry about the shit that's really affecting me. And parents just get caught up in their own stuff. They don't pay attention. They don't talk to their kids. Yeah. We don't have the language, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the, the child, if you're looking for an, a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old to come to you and say, you know, I'm suffering from some uh, <laughs> low self-esteem. Like, they don't know that word. Like, they don't understand it. I didn't know what it felt like. I couldn't have described it to you the way that I am now when I was 15, you know, I didn't, I didn't know why I was sexually active by 14, you know, and why I was starting to dabble with drugs and alcohol by the time I was 15. Like, I didn't know that was in response to something else. You know, I didn't know I was trying to mask something with my, my usage back then. So, yeah. Masking what? Uh, when I started getting drunk or high or chasing right, girls. Right, but what were you masking? The insecurity. Always, always insecurity. Mm -hmm. Like, always inadequacy and insecurity and what feeling like when you're reaching for that booze at this point in time in your life what what hole are you filling is yeah. it insecurity or is it more than that 
Because it sounds to me like it's more than that. Because I mean, it, it's, I'm sure that it is. I'm sure it's it's all along that same line, though, where it's something I still struggle with today, like you just pointed out before we got on here. Yeah. It's self-worth. It's like, right. I don't value myself because I'm comparing myself to others. And I see you as uh, someone who's been to law school. So it's like, I already know you excel on a level that I don't, and I feel inadequate about it. Like, you believe that I excel on a level yeah. that you don't, you don't know that. For, for sure. And right? what, what do we sure. talk about off the air? You, you argue for your limitations right. often, right? So it's that idea that, look, I mean, I'm not the best speller. I've written eight books, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and so, so I don't, I don't let my limitations, but, but what I was, let my limitations hold me back. But what I was just curious about is that there had, there is insecurities. There's levels of insecurities. I think every teenager has, you know, junior high kid, that sort of thing. Right. But to me, there seems like there was something that you were trying to fill with substances. And that's, that's my real question because to me, that's at the heart of your healing is that you weren't feeling worthy or what have you that somehow that that made you feel cool or yeah. Yeah. Right. Ego. <laughs> like, yeah, right. yeah, okay. you're right. That was also there's also that like the flip side to being insecure, but also being able to be a star athlete or attract the cheerleader or that then I could that that starts to right here comes the addict in you. It's like you know, I'm, I'm selfish, I'm self-centered and I struggle with impulse control. So I already, I already feel insecure and, and inadequate, but I can excel on the sports field. I can, I can sleep with another cheerleader. And, and for the moment I feel good about myself. Worthy. I, I feel worthy. Worthy. Yeah. I finally feel worthy, but it's very short lived. It's, it's a lot like my drug use. It's, it's a lot like alcohol use. It's, it's always, I, I feel uncomfortable to the point where I want it fixed right now. So I reach out for whatever is at, at my disposal that will alleviate that symptom right now. So you're numbing yourself more or less. Right. To not feeling those certain things that are surfacing. Right. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have access to sex and drugs um, and, you know, pats on the back for sport, whatever. Like, yeah, those are the things that I, that I went for. I mean, I was very, very self-absorbed and very, you know, uh, egocentric. And I, since I was like, I was always dressed very nice. I, you know, I spend hours in front of my, in front of the mirror, getting myself ready. Um, yeah, I mean, like those are all things that we're just kind of tapping into right now. I haven't talked about this kind of stuff in forever. Like, I, I don't even think about it, but. I was super self-absorbed, right? And people would constantly tell me that I have a big ego. <laughs> and I would be like, no, I don't. You don't know me. Because really what, what I was hearing was, you are full of yourself and you think you're great. And really in my head, I was thinking, no, I think I'm a piece of shit who can't barely read. Like, that was the truth. And I'm just trying to cover it up gotcha. with all this other stuff. So I was always at odds with myself, feeling insecure, feeling inadequate, and but at the, at the flip of it was always being, I was able to trick myself by using women and, and using you know, parties and being the most popular and like all those kind of things. Coolness. Being cool, yeah, it was, 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 a, was a mask and it was a front. And instead of addressing you know, the root of my, uh, my problems, which was really just a lack of discipline and responsibility, um, you know, the, then I would just push back against that and 
and be cooler. <laughs> and, and the ultimate, ultimate expression of coolness is dropping out of high school, you know, yeah. because I want to, again, just not be held accountable or be forced to be uh, disciplined or, or responsible. Those are the things that I, that I'm terrified of as a teenager. Um, because I don't feel like I know how to do that. I don't feel like I know how to do school or write book reports or solve math equations or, or, you know, like all that stuff. So, so then I, I lash out against that and I blame others and I blame the system and I'm like an anarchist and I'm like, everyone's like sheep. And <laughs> you know, like I, I, again, I put up this huge front yeah. and I put on this huge theatrical show. Um, and in high school, this shit works. Girls are like, that guy's cool. He smokes. He's the quarterback, and he's he's anti, you know, responsibility and all this stuff. And it like that shit works. It stops working after high school. Um, when you have to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the athlete, the, the athlete's gone. gone. Yeah. You know, I've blown an opportunity to play baseball at ASU. They were scouting me as a freshman. Um, but then I was thrown off the baseball team five times in four years. For what? Well, always for yelling at the coach or calling the coach names. Oh, uh, and in okay. the last instance, you know, I, I had a D in a class and he told me this was like a spring training game. And he said, you know, you're, you're going to sit. Basically, I want to make an example of you and I want you to kind of teach you a lesson. And then I called him a bunch of derogatory names and uh, I walked home from out somewhere out here out in the east valley and i i i walked through a circle k and i called my dad and i said i'm done you know i'm never i'm never playing baseball again and uh you know i I can't even imagine what it was like to be my parent um i can't imagine how much stress i put on mom and dad um and this was just the beginning you know so so they come out and they pick me up and they take me home and uh i don't play baseball ever again and that was something that I had spent. And I mean, my whole identity was really built around because at the end of the day, whenever I felt like a piece of shit, like at least I could say I was a really good baseball player. And that moment it died, you know, now the only thing I can tell myself is I'm a piece of shit. And so I really leaned into that for a couple of years and I was drinking and partying and hard using. Um, that's everything from psychedelic drugs to ecstasy, you know, cocaine and alcohol, kind of just a, what we describe as like a hard user. In high school, it was, it was a lot of blackout drinking and, and hard using, you know, getting high before class, smoking pot, you know, that sort of thing. It wasn't until after high school and, and sports were long gone that I started to experiment with even harder drugs and, uh, and really started to struggle with insecurities. And uh, was, was it the same mask you were trying to put on, you think? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Of being cool. Yeah. So then I adopted the kind of like jackass persona, you know, like the Johnny Knoxville, Bam Margera type persona. Like I had the studded belt from like, uh, what's that store called? Hot Topic. Yes. Yeah. I was like, basically just go pull shit off the rack from Hot Topic and then like smoke cigarettes and wear cowboy hats with necklaces and like the Ray-Bans and stuff with my shirt all splayed open. I mean, right. Cause it was like, if I'm going to be a loser, I'm going to be cool about it. Like I'm going to be nonchalant about it or whatever. And, uh, yeah, so I was doing that kind of stuff and, and, uh, uh, lying to myself basically that, that this was a fun existence and I didn't care about traditional things and I wasn't going to go down the road of going to college like my friends or I wasn't going to pursue, um, 
any occupation yeah. at this time. I'm still just trying to find myself. And uh, I get tangled up with, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't do anything for work, right? Like I, I dabble with some working for my dad, but even, even that is, my dad, bless his soul, you know, tries to give me opportunities to go to work for him and his company, and I just blow it constantly. Like I, I miss work, or I show up drunk, or people smell alcohol in my breath, and they have to complain about their, you know, I mean, like, what a shit thing to do to your dad. And, um, and so I meet a girl who's a, an exotic dancer, and uh, she validates me again, right? Because she's beautiful, and uh, that's the only thing that matters, is that I have a beautiful girlfriend to the outside world. You know, she was in Playboy, so that was, I mean, I fucking did it. <laughs> it's like I've done it I've hit the jackpot it's everything I've ever wanted in a woman right right and uh, we end up getting hooked on painkillers we're just hard users we're having fun we're partying and uh, we get a bottle of like Percocets and we we take those together for a couple weeks and this is the first time that I've ever become physically dependent on a substance I didn't know I was going to become physically dependent so like to anybody listening that's out there that's drinking a lot drinking consecutively and you're using painkillers consecutively like there's no science doesn't know science doesn't know when you become a drug addict like when you get hooked and you're effed like and this was my time so all the drugs i'd done up to then i wasn't a drug addict yet i hadn't become physically dependent and it was after about two weeks of daily use of uh, an opiate that i became physically dependent and um then Everything falls to the wayside, and you are narrow focused on one thing and one thing only. And that's that's getting the drug. So getting the drug is becomes my goal, and I do whatever it takes to get that drug. So I start working for a drug addict, a drug dealer, who deals pills, and um, you know I'm trying to keep it under wraps. I'm trying not to let mom and dad know, um, and for 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 quite a while, like that's. I'm able to hide this from everybody. You know, I'm, I'm still taking money from mom and dad in ways like, hey, I need to borrow $500 to go get my, like, tags done on my truck or whatever. Like, this kind of scam is just constantly and perpetually going on for years and years. Or I take my dad's debit card out of his wallet without him knowing, and I run to the store. I fill up my car with gas, and I, you know, pull out $40. I mean, per, I mean this is, like, constant. Is there self-reflection at this point in time? No. No, no, no. And the way that I would put it is that no matter, no matter what I'm going to tell you, like during the addicted phase of my life, I could wholeheartedly pass a lie detector test. Like I, there's no guilt. I wasn't, no, you just didn't understand why I was doing it. That's the problem. If you were me, you would do the same thing is how I think all of us out there right now feel if they're addicted to drugs, the, the feeling is it's, it's a belief feeling is too light it's a belief that that i had that if you were in my shoes you would do this too you would also steal from your father you would you know your even my dad would understand if he felt like i did why i have to steal his television in the middle of the night and go pawn it like mm-hmm. i don't want to wake you up and have to explain this to you because that would be too hard on you dad so I'm going to just take the TV and I'm going to sell it. Like, that's the kind of crazy shit that it's you rationalizing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're constantly justifying and rationalizing your behavior. And that's basically what I do for, for the entirety of my addiction 
is I'm constantly justifying my worsening behavior. So as an opiate addict, you know, I won't say no to, to heroin. Obviously, they're, they're very similar. So you, you, you use heroin, you shoot heroin with needle, you smoke heroin, you smoke pills, you snort pills. It's all this, this is all happening. And all the while, I'm facilitating all this by either hustling it out of my mom and dad without them really catching on to it. And that just goes to show just you know, to the extent of manipulation. You know, it's, it's, you'd think that you would never be manipulated by a drug addict, especially if that drug addict was your son. But the truth is, is you, you can't underestimate the... I call the, it ingenuity yeah. almost. Yeah, yeah you... you, you it's what I, it's what, it's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> like it's all my effort is put, put into the thought of how will I steal $40 from you? That's how I wake up and, and I don't act on it until I've solved it. You know what I mean? And I come up with a new way every day and right. that is how you do it. I know exactly what you mean doing criminal defense for 15 years. I was amazed at some of the things that people would do. Um, to feed their addictions and how is that my goodness if you put this in kind of ingenuity into something else you wouldn't need the 40 bucks you'd have 40 million dollars I mean that was it's just, totally true yeah and I've seen it over and over again yeah the <laughs> amount of time and energy and focus that we'll put into figuring out a way to either get the drug or get the money to get the drug is ridiculous um, but it also just lends itself to just you know it's an obsession and it's insanity yeah and it's it's not anything, it, there's no other explanation for it. And oftentimes I get frustrated because we try harder to understand it. And it's just, it's not that complicated. And have you just, been arrested at this point at all? Yeah, so I mean, in my mid twenties or so, I've, I'm addicted to pills and I've been, to, I've been locked up a, a few times for, I don't know, I think I have two or three DUIs, extreme DUIs for that time. And this was back when we had like Tent City here in the Valley. So like I'd go and spend months at like Tent City. And um, there was even a time when me and uh, this girl that got that, that we were both hooked that I got a DUI and I was going in for like three months into Tent City. And then we were, before I got put into Tent City, we were out we got lost, we were, we were high, we were drunk, and we were driving, and it was six o'clock in the morning, and she was driving the car, she ran the car up onto a sidewalk, and the mailbox fell through the hood of the car, and the car blew up, like Whoa. physically exploded. So we ran out of the car and watched it burn, and then it ex exploded. It's six o'clock in the morning, two doors down from our house. And so she gets arrested, and we actually spend time in jail together at the same time. And we're, <laughs> that's how like, yeah. that's so ridiculous. <laughs> that is just so ridiculous. And I'm going to just say this right now. Like if I laugh at things that I've done in my past that are terrifying or, you know, maybe I shouldn't laugh at those sort of things. I just want to like have it on the air that like I get it, but it's, it's in my past and it's my past and yeah. I'm not making light of anybody else who's ever been through anything traumatic. And if that, that sort of thing is traumatic to you, I apologize. But at the same time, it helps me to cope with this shit. <laughs> like I, I'm, I have a good sense of humor about it. And looking back at the insane things that I've done, all I can do is laugh. I don't, I don't have anything else for it. Um, well, I, you can't let your past hold you prisoner either. That's, no. that's the whole key to life in itself is you have to be able to not only address what's happened, but you become a better person by doing that. And you know, whatever coping mechanism you're using 
as long as it's not drugs or alcohol, right, or yeah. hurting other people, then there's no reason why you shouldn't laugh about those experiences because that's your story to tell. Right. Yeah. But I guess the question for me would be, is that laughter another mask or are we repairing what's, what started the problem to begin with? Right. No, I, I, I think that I have just made peace with okay. the fact that that person isn't this person, that that gotcha. was an insane person okay. under, uh, under the influence. And, I, you know, and now with the education that I have and, the, and obviously the experience that I've had as being sober, yeah, it's easy for me to laugh at it. But, you know, for some out there that, you know, are either in it or have kids that are in it, like it's tough. I, I get it. But, you know, I can, can look back and, and, and laugh at the situations that I was in because... I know that's not me. That's just. Yeah, and I just wanted to clarify that from a place of self-acceptance and growth, right. not from a place of, of minimizing the severity of the behavior. For sure. Yeah. Oh, no. I maximize it. <laughs> I know the severity of it. So, yeah. So, I, so, so that relationship, uh, we, we have a son together. And, uh, and uh, after about a year or two, I abandoned, abandoned the two of them. She's still at the time struggling with drugs. And uh, I, you know, we, we fight. It's a, it's a very, it's a tumultuous relationship. And uh, I leave the house. I go probably back to live with my parents or somebody sleep on a couch or something. And I, and I continue to spiral even further out of control. The, the, the dealer that I had worked out an arrangement with as being the driver for, he, uh, so we're, we're at the height of like the opioid um, Oxycontin uh, craze. Um, and we're, we're driving these pills all over town and all this kind of stuff. And we, uh, we, get, we get busted by none other than Steven Seagal. Oh, um, wow. He was a part of some like cops-esque type show here in the Valley mm -hmm. in the mid-2000s. And uh, he would go around with basically like a SWAT team and they would go and do drug busts all around the video or all around the, the valley. And he would like videotape it and there'd be Steven Seagal in the middle of a, of a goddamn drug bust. I don't know why, but awesome entertainment. And uh, so we're outside of uh, the, the dealer's house and I'm getting into my car and I just got a, a handful of pills that I'm supposed to put in my middle console into the, into the bin that I hold my drugs in, but I've got them in my hand and these all these black SUVs pour up and all these officers pour out and they're running towards the house and there's like camera crews, like all the lighting, it's nighttime and they have all right. the lights out. And I, and I see, I'm like, that's, I'm, I'm hauling ass and I'm trying to drive away from the house as fast as I can. And I'm like, that's, that was Steven Seagal. <laughs> like, what is going on? So I get to my folks house, which is only two blocks away. I step out of my vehicle. One of the black SUVs tails me all the way there. As I get out of my car, I just let go of the pills into the rocks and they just fall without them knowing. And I put my hands up, my mom and dad come out and uh, I'd already told them a lie about where I was going and like all this kind of stuff. So the officers interrogate me, interrogate my mom and dad. My mom and dad vouch for me and protect me and uh, the officers leave me alone. Uh, so this is, an, this is another part, like so many times in my, in my story, I, I should have been put in prison for decades and um but but the other dealer he's not so lucky and they find you know they find guns and they find pills and all this kind of stuff so anyway he gets sent away for a for a long period of time um and now i'm left with no drugs so i need to quickly transition and figure out a way to uh keep keep my drug addiction alive 
and uh, a friend of mine says, you know, you can cure your opiate addiction with uh, crystal meth. Oh. And so I'm into drugs now for four or five years. I'm very, very hopeless. And I'm, I'm really at the, like, the end of my rope right here. And I'm trying to figure out, do I, do I like, I'm, I'm taking like Suboxone, these, these things to like try to get me off of the drugs because I see the end in sight. And someone says, you know, if you're really hurting, like try meth, you know, it will fix your opiate addiction. So I get my hands on some meth and I, and I smoke it for the first time. And it's the last time that I've ever used an opiate. And then I'm strung out on crystal meth now. And I'm absolutely hooked on that drug. It's also about this time that bath salts were a thing. Oh, God, yeah. Yes, I remember that. Right. So we were, for some reason... Injecting <laughs> bath salts. Well, yeah, we were allowing oh. ourselves to, like, sell, you know, basically, like, synthetic cocaine over the counter at, like, a smoke shop. Um, and this is at the height of my drug addiction. And I'm using crystal meth daily. And I'm now using bath salts and crystal meth, which they're not a great combo. And they, they they're not me. good separately either. They're, right. <laughs> that's totally I true. I would think not. No, I, <laughs> fair. That's a fair, that's a fair statement. Um, to curb the insane amounts of anxiety, um, I would also, I would also be taking Xanax like in ungodly amounts. So an upper with a downer, upper, upper with a downer to just try to hang on to like any type of sanity that I could. So in this time, um, you know, I, I go through all these different groups of people, everyone from car thieves who, because I have transportation, were, were in the middle of the night going out and stealing vehicles and driving them to chop shops in South Phoenix. Uh, we break into jewelry stores, you know, throwing bricks through windows, running in, grab what you can, jump back in the car and go. Um, counterfeiting was the thing. So we're trying to make counterfeit checks, make counterfeit money, running through McDonald's with a $20 bill, fake money. You know, you're, this is just my, this is every day, all day. And now I don't sleep. So I'm up three, four, five days at a time. And then I would sleep for like 12 hours and then I'd be back up and at it again. Um, getting progressively more and more dangerous. If that didn't sound dangerous enough, it gets more, there is more. And, and I mean, like at the heart of my story, it can always get worse is kind of the motto. Like no matter how bad you think you have it, it gets worse. Like you can keep going like, Oh, it can't get worse. Oh, it can't, it gets worse. So how worse did it get? It gets bad. Um, you know, I, some things I can't say that I did. Um, but I, I, I mean, at the, at the height of it, you know, this crew that we're with, you know, some of these individuals, uh, are rumored to have murdered people, right? And now they're get now everyone's freaking out. Um, and I don't want to get graphic or, or or even like get into the details of that. But uh, you know, in a home evasion type thing, like where people are breaking into houses and killing people, and it was like, holy shit! I mean, like I was terrified. I was already terrified. I don't want you to think that like I was out and about with these criminals and it was fun. It was terrifying. It was never sleep, no beds, um, always terrified of the person in the room next to you, uh, either robbing you or hacking your computer or hacking your phone. You know, if you have a laptop, you're completely paranoid, just like you, you would think mm -hmm. that crystal meth addicts are. The, the thing about us, uh, they're, we're called tweakers. But the thing about tweakers are that 
you are paranoid from the drug, but you are also paran you're so paranoid of other people that you behave in the way that you blame others. So yes, the house was wired because we're paranoid that the house is wired and that other people are listening. So then people hide voice recorders around the house to catch other people talking about them because you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's this weird behavior, but it's real. And it's like, it drives you kind of crazy. So I get arrested. Um, I'm out hallucinating. I've been awake for days and uh, the, 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 the drug addicts that I'm living with at the time, they're nervous that I've got a, a butcher knife in my hand and I'm just pacing around by the pool or something. So they, they manipulate me. They convince me to get in the car. They drive me into a neighborhood and they let me out and they just get the hell away from me. Right? This is apparently like, this is how we handle things. It was more just like, he's too crazy right now. Let's just go drop him off in the middle of the neighborhood. By the time he figures it all out, like he'll be normal again. And uh, this hallucinatory episode, I am like climbing a tree and, and just imagine your neighborhood and imagine seeing some adult man at 30 years old climbing a tree with his shirt off and um, you're not sure what the hell's going on. So they call the police on me. The police get there and I'm at the top of the trees and I'm yelling something about, you know, the, the, the world is ending and uh, the floor, the, you know, the, in my mind, I can visualize everything is cracking and it's like lava is coming out and it's like the whole world is erupting. And I've got my three-year-old son in my hands and I'm trying hard to keep him out of the fire. And they get me down, they pull me down, they arrest me, they take me to jail, I've got drugs in my pocket. I'm still hallucinating. I get taken to Fourth Ave. I get put through the same kind of thing as everybody else. But what they don't know is that I'm severely hallucinating. And uh, I spend the night in jail. I cause a scene. I pick a fight. I mean, I don't, I don't, I vaguely remember this kind of stuff. So, like, I'm in, like, a general population cell with, you know, 30 other guys. I'm very disruptive. And they put me in a cell all alone. And I, I can remember being up in the cell um, I'm holding my ear up to the toilet because I can hear voices coming out of the toilet. So I'm having a conversation with the toilet. And then as I look out the window from the door, I imagine that they have taken this whole cell and they had pushed it over the edge of the top of like a skyscraper. So now my cell is hovering over the edge of a skyscraper and they're going to let me go. And so you can imagine how scary that must feel. And, uh, the weirdest shit. This girl named Courtney, she, she comes to the window and I recognize her as a girl I went to grade school with and she tries to talk me down. I try to explain to her the situation and she's there, she's calling me down. It turns out she's a real person and she is the girl that I went to grade school with and somehow she saw my name on a list and she recognized it and she had come up to, to see me, you know? And uh, here in the midst of all this hallucinating, you know, here's this like old friend mm -hmm. who calms me down Gets me through the episode, and uh, in the morning, I still get taken in front of the judge like everybody else. We go into this white room. It's all white tiles, white floor, white benches, all made of metal. We're all handcuffed. There's like 20 men. We're going to sit down in front of a judge, and he's going to go through all of our like charges from the night, and then you basically get released on, on, on that. I think that we are in a gas chamber, and I think that they're going to kill us all. Right. Like I'm looking around and that's the that's the hallucination that I'm having. So I I try to escape. And so but I'm in a courthouse in the police station. So 
I start breaking through doors and I'm running for it, just blindly running for it. Obviously, this isn't a good idea. I do not recommend it to anybody who's ever incarcerated. Don't leave. They chase me down and, you know, they catch me. They, they, I get tased. I get my head split open. I get thrown in a padded room. And uh, I also assault a police officer with my handcuffs. And he has to go to the hospital for, like, a laceration on his face. So... Now I have multiple felonies, including dangerous drug possessions, assault on a police officer. You know, it just keeps getting fucking worse, right? Like it can't get any worse. It just keeps getting worse. And uh, I get released. I actually go spend some time in like a behavioral health or like a, a mental hospital. And um, I spend seven days there and it's honestly terrifying. Uh, it was a terrifying experience. And... Uh, I get out of that and I go spend 30 days in a rehab and uh, in that rehab for the first time I'm sober I'm finally removed from drugs and I haven't been removed from drugs for probably seven or eight years like even not for a day and uh, you know here are these people that work in this place and they're and they're they're trying to coach me and teach me you know that it's not the drugs that were making your life this hard it was it was always you you know and they're starting to teach me all these like enlightening things that I'd never once in my life heard. And uh, it felt amazing. I was in uh, this place called the Maverick House, and it was before it's changed now. Uh, it's changed buildings. It, this place was, was a shithole. There's no other way to describe it. It was riddled with bed bugs, and it was, for all intents and purposes, ghetto. <laughs> it was free, and uh, I absolutely loved it. Like, for the first time, people were telling me, this is what these were your these were your real problems you know and it was like oh wow i'd never heard anybody talk like this before so i felt really good and i felt really like there was a solution to all that pain so all that insecurity as a high school kid all that in inadequacy like it all started to make sense like why i was behaving the way i was and why like time and time again i was ending up in these horrible relationships with people or friends or you know like it, it was uh it was an awesome experience. It all boils down to self-worth right there. And we talk about that all the time on this show. Yeah. Was that the aha moment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure. It, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, today there's so much talk about uh, growth mindset and, and self-help stuff and all that, whatever. But, like, man, I never heard nothing like that. Like, I never read anything like that. Or I never had anyone apply it personally to my life. Right. Like we might have read, I read, read the power of positive thinking, I think when I was in high school and I thought it was fantastic, but I, but it would have been nice to have somebody like coach me through it. Right. Like yeah. a, like a life coach, like yeah. someone to explain like how you see, this is you, <laughs> this part is you. And you know, that's what, that's what the 30 days in, in, in rehab was. It was, uh, I remember the counselor there, Ed, he's the guy that was the director and he would just, every time I spoke, man, I swear to God, he goes, that's your ego again. You know, and I'd be like, no, man, like, no, it, you know. They were holding you in check. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, and I would say something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's your ego again. Yeah. Like, that's just your ego again, man. And it was just like that accountability, somebody pointing the finger and just saying, right. you're doing it again. You're doing it again. 30 days of that. I met a girl in there. Uh-oh. And I fell in love. And uh, so it was a co-ed thing. Two wings, but we would see each other occasionally, like, in groups or in... Uh, lunch or whatever and uh i fell in love you know i had 
I had, I had it all figured out now after just being in there for two weeks and, uh, I had everything to offer, you know, <laughs> so, uh-huh. so here we are two kindred spirits falling in love in rehab. And, uh, the counselor's like, this isn't a good idea. You guys need to knock this shit off and don't do it. And I'm like, dude, I'm doing everything you guys are telling me to do. You know, I'm doing your big book stuff. I got your sponsors. I'm going to go to a meeting. Like I get it. Like I'm totally going to be fine. I don't want to do that stuff ever again. Like, you know, my story, like I have no interest in going backwards. Um, it's going to be good. So I get out of rehab. They're like, you should go and live in a halfway house, like where you're, you're being held accountable. You know, you've got other men around you that are going through the same thing. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm going to go live with mom and dad again. But so you got legal issues as well, right? But I do. I have lots of legal issues. I still got to go sort out and, and uh, go through. I'll be on probation for years and, and all that kind of stuff. So we get out. Me and her continue to date. We go to meetings. We're, we're healthy and, and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, two months in, we, uh, so I'm three months sober. Her and I go to, I don't know, it's like the Cheesecake Factory or like the Elephant Bar or something. And we're sitting there and uh, we've made the decision to drink. So before we went in, we had a few drinks of vodka in the car. And then we went in and we were having a few drinks. And I, um, I'll never forget it. Like when... People ask me, am I an alcoholic or a drug addict? It's a difficult question. It's, it's difficult to explain. But all that matters is that in that moment, once enough alcohol got into my system, the guards rails came off and I immediately didn't give a shit anymore and I wanted to get high. So I looked at her in the face and I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I drunk, stood up, walked to my car and I left. And I drove to a dope house and I stayed there for another six months. And that's all it took. I got drunk and I said, fuck it. I don't care anymore. And I'm going to just start shooting dope again. And I went right back to the old behaviors that I had. And it was that life just immediately picked right back up again. And all the delusions and all the lies and all the justifications were there. And you know what I mean? Like I gave it all up. I gave it all up. It was still your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. And an addict was your comfort zone. Right. Yeah, get, you know, doing, giving up is easier than people want to admit. Doing nothing isn't that hard. It can be very painful, but giving up on all the responsibilities that you have is easy. Just do it. Just stop giving a shit, right? And if, you, if you're like me, you can do that, especially if you get high. <laughs> That's what I feel like. So I, I spent so that, six months. So that really wasn't the aha moment then at the, at, no. the, at the first, right? It was a recognition. It was a step, but that wasn't the aha moment. When was the aha moment? Yes. Aha moment when it comes to this for me is more like when I spend six months using again and I get locked up now for violating my probation because I'm obviously not going to drug courts or doing anything like that anymore. A, they finally arrest me. Um, that's the last time that I use. So that's, that's July 16th, 2012. Uh, I'm in a circle with a bunch of meth addicts. I know this might be the last time that I ever get high. I'm going to prison for a year. My mom and dad are going to come pick me up. You know, this was what we, I'd already been avoiding the getting, getting locked up. I was already on the run yeah. for a couple months and then they had talked me out of it. Like, dude, just go face the music Go put in the year and then uh, you'll get back out. And I'm, so the addicts that I live with, they're like, just go do the year because it'll be wiped from your record. 
you know, and then if you when when you get caught again, it won't be held against you. Like they're already in the mindset that like you're screwed. You're not going to get sober. So just go do the year in prison. Come back out. We'll keep committing crimes and doing drugs. And then that way, when you get popped again, you're not going to serve the same amount of time. Some sort of street logic like that. But but in hindsight, you can hear the the, the stupidity. Yeah, and just yeah. The, the they don't they are hopeless. Like we're hopeless. We're not getting sober. We're going to go to prison and get back out and just keep using is the mentality. And you're never going to get sober. So don't bother this whole shit this rehab plan that I had. We go into the court and, you know, a, p- a couple people from the rehab uh, and my dad and my brother, like they, they all kind of come together and they beg the court to allow me to go back to that rehab. This will be now the second time I'm there in 12 months. Arrest me to the rehab. If I leave or walk out, you know, I'm in violation and I'm going to prison. Uh, and then they also force me to take a three-month aftercare and arrest me to a halfway home. So I can't go back home to mom and dad. Right. So this time I, so, and for whatever reason, this judge um, takes pity on me and gives me an opportunity, you know, to, she doesn't lock me up and she lets me go back to that rehab. And I said that I had an aha moment back then because I got a taste of it, right? I just had like a, a taste of it for the first time that there was a, that there was a solution if I was willing to do some, some work, right? And when I got back into that rehab this time, I came in and I surrendered 100%. Any opportunity that I, that I was presented with where you make the decision, not me, I let them make the decision. So if that meant like you want me to get a sponsor, fine. I'll get one and I'll call them. You want me to call them? Call them right now. Before I was, I was still reluctant to do that. I didn't want to pick up the phone and call and talk to another man about my problems or do all that shit. Um, you want me to do my steps, like this 12-step program. I'm like, fine, I'll do the steps. You want me to, I mean, surrendering is surrendering. And when you fully commit to surrendering your actions, um, it's a very freeing experience. What allowed you to surrender? Absolutely hopeless. Uh, I think I had hit absolute hopelessness. I could not for the life of me see any future where I wasn't going back to hanging out with those people again. Like there was, there was, it was either I'll go for 30 days of absolute surrender as an experiment. If this doesn't work, then I know where I'm going and I'm pretty sure that's where I'm going to end up anyway. I'm going to end up right back in that dope house again. So why not? I I, almost like I logically just went, just stop making decisions for yourself because your decision-making skills are terrible and they keep leading you into trouble. And that's what I was kind of getting at because it was a choice, right? Because the difference between you now and had you not made that choice, and this is what I think is really important that I saw in my legal career, is that a lot of people might have thought they were making that choice and then they went back and back again like you did, right? And so that's why I was real curious what... what motivated that choice because a lot of addicts if they give up if they surrender as i see it they either surrendering to death or 20 years in prison right for sure um so what do you think was the difference i mean you 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 work with addicts and we're going to talk about that in your in your in the future in this show here but what was the difference what do you think would help somebody out there now make that same choice that you did instead of making a different choice 
Well, in that rehab, you know, those counselors, they, they're, they're, you're doing eight classes a day and they're teaching you things like, okay, but you, but here's what I want to get mm. at. You made the choice. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression that, that, um, you know, education doesn't teach experience teaches. Right. So there was something about you and your experience that made you said, say I'm done because look, you said it yourself earlier. You went through all these things. You thought it was great. And then you go to a restaurant and you're drunk and it's over. Right. So that was the experience. Right. Right. It was experience that that was the aha moment. It was, and this is how I've told my story a million times in AA meetings and stuff. And it's when I first got to rehab, they gave me seven things that I need to do. I'm just using a number, right? They said, here's the seven things you need to do to stay sober. Classic me. I said, I'll do it with half that shit. So I took three of your suggestions or four of your suggestions and I left out three of them. And then I went out and I used again, just like you told me I was going to. So on my second go around this time, I said, I'll do all seven. I'll do all seven because I got a taste of it with, with four, but I'm going to now, I see where I still try to manipulate the people around me and I still try to justify me dating a girl out of rehab. Like I still, I didn't quite get it. So I guess you're right. It's, it's always been about having a little bit of success from one experience and then seeing that as a catalyst for like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go more into this. So I got a little taste of success and I could see that there was some truth to the things that they were teaching me there. And, I, and then I said, as I came in that second time, now, lucky my story was like, you know, so close together. I got high and I came right back and I was like, all right, I've been out there screwing up again, and this time I'm going to do exactly what you guys told me. Because I, I could tell you, I could quantify what I didn't do, right? And, and God gave me an opportunity with this second go-round. Guess what? I fell in love again. I oh met God, another no. girl. But, but, but here's, here's the point I want to, before we start talking about relationships and everything. Sure. It seems to me that you made the choice, and maybe this was motivated by all the people that showed up. You said, I don't know what the judge saw in me to give me this second chance. Is it possible, looking back, that at the core of the decision was that you decided that you were worth it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for sure. But that was real hard for you to say, yeah. wasn't it? Well, it is. that's his self-defeating behavior that we were talking about off the air and earlier on the show and it, go, it boils down to self-worth and self-esteem. And we don't realize how much that affects us. And I can see when you go back the second time and they give you that list that you want to excel at that, because that's actually the athlete in you again, that mask that you were wearing as the athlete, you wanted to excel to get through all of that. So I think that played a pinnacle part in your success going through it another time, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're touching on something like that's, that's, that's vital, like that's... Right, because that's what I think when I, going back through my experience and seeing, you know, people like you and, and being, being an attorney for people like you, right? I think the difference, what I see, is that you decided that you're worth it. And you still, you know, you want to talk about relationships and your different relationships and everything else. No, because we can always look to external validators, right? But I think at the core, and this is, what, this is a message I hope, to convey today to anyone who's listening to this, I think if somebody just decides they're worth more than being an addict, because no one, to my thinking, no one's brought onto this earth to be an addict, right? That um, if they decide that they're worth it, 
that's the key. It doesn't matter if there's another relationship. It doesn't matter about the parents. I mean, those things can be reminders that you're worth it, right? All those people right. showing up from rehab and everything else. But then you, you, but you have to say, because I could give you all these, I could give you everything, you know, I could give you the, the secrets to the universe. And if you don't believe them or you don't choose to follow them or what have you, it doesn't matter, right? right. You have to make the choice to become sober, make the choice to turn your life around, that sort of thing. And that requires an element of worth. Yeah, it's, you're, you're right. It's this complete psychic change that occurs that's really, it's hard to pinpoint when does that happen. When do you go from a habitual liar, manipulator, to being someone who is hell-bent on telling the truth, right? Because they're afraid that if they don't tell the truth, they're going to go back to using drugs again. But, you know what I mean? Like, there's this, there's this shift, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a combination of a lot of things. It's all of the experiences, it's, right. it's the education, it's the people surrounding me that are helping me to, to see all these things come to light. But, but, you're, but you're right, there's, there's a shift, right? There's a shift where all of a sudden I'm like, I'm, I'm 100% worth it. And from this day on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. You know, I'm really going to go for it. And where the hell was that guy when, he, when I was 19? Like, it's, it's hard to even... He needed the experience that you had to yeah. get to that point, right? Because yeah. if I would have been somehow been there now and talked to your 19 year old self yeah i would have get blown off right you would have just ignored i could have again say all this stuff nah right right you wouldn't have believed it you had to have the experience right of lack of worth in order to really fully understand your worth yeah yeah and, and i think that helps you with what you choose to do with your life today because you not only help other people but you're relatable you and that's that's always been my sticking point is back in, in my day when I was raped and went to a rape counselor, she had no clue because she had never been there herself. She thought the little degree on the wall meant she could help me out of my darkness because my parents silenced my voice. They wouldn't do anything. And I had to deal with that rape at 17, not knowing how to feel. And she said, I know how you feel. And it's like, have you ever been raped? Have you ever, are you in my head and my heart? How could you even know how I feel? And the one thing I've always hated in life is somebody that says, I know how you feel. We really don't know how a person feels, but we can relate to what they're going through. And you have turned everything around so positively because you take those experiences you've been through, you relate it to other people who have been there and who are going through those things. And yet you take it a step further. You not only talk to them and share experiences, but you're giving them a way to become more healthy as a human being, not just emotionally, but also physically. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, I, so getting, out, uh, getting out of rehab, going to live in the halfway house, you know, I, I become pretty obsessive over uh, exercise and fitness. I mean, obviously there's some benefits to that that we all, that we all understand. You know, I felt really good about exercising. Uh, you get self-confidence, you get, you get all these things. <clears throat> and um, so three or four months into, the, into that process, I, I'm not really still, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I'm 31 years old and I'm, I'm listening to all kinds of self-help stuff and, and, and working you know, program, going to meetings and, and all that kind of stuff. And just uh, something catches my ear that's like, you know, if you're waking, whatever's waking you up at four o'clock in the morning, if you're waking up, if you're waking up every day at four o'clock in the morning thinking about the same thing, that's the thing you're passionate about. And I was like, well, I mean, I didn't even know how to debate it. I was like, it's exercise. I've been doing it for four straight months. Like every morning when I wake up, all I'm thinking about is hitting uh, Piesta Wall Peak or going to LA Fitness. And like, I'm really into exercise. I'm, I'm studying videos on YouTube. So I'm like, okay, well, 
could I see myself, you know, working in this field? And I was like, yeah, why not? I, I like doing this. I can do this forever. So I went to school for personal training at uh, Paradise Valley Community College. And uh, I thought I would be like a personal, personal, what are they called? Personal trainer. trainer. Yeah. A personal trainer, like LA Fitness. And so I'm educating myself. I'm learning more about, uh, you know, about personal training and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. And I'm teaching it to the guys at the halfway house. And really, like, in working with others is that that's where I really, really found, like, it's the first time I ever actually worked with another human being. Like, I'm so selfish and self-centered. It's always been about me. Um, and it was never about you. I never you were knew. so insecure that you mask it with selfishness. Let's, yeah. let's, let's work. Because let's I think, that's, imp- yeah, I think yeah. that's important because we tend to gloss over things like that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you had such low self-esteem that you mask it with these other things. So with my newfound self-esteem, I also find that I really enjoy the stories of other people. Like, I love meeting people. It's like something that just fires me up. I, I love how different everyone is. Um, and so the guys in the halfway house, they all come to me with their, their different stories and their different, there's, there's basically their different challenges that present, present themselves to you. And, you know, how do we help them? And, you know, that's, that's just kind of how this all thing just kind of snowballs. And I can really feel myself just getting drawn to this, but I also, and realistically, I'm like, God, I just don't know if I just want to go I've never been a very good employee. <laughs> like, I'm really not going to, I'm, I'm nervous about like getting yeah. a job and doing that kind of thing. So I'm lucky enough to at about a year of sobriety, get inter- introduced to CrossFit. And this was 10 years ago, whatever it was, nine years ago. Um, it's out of a garage. And uh, for those that don't know what CrossFit is, CrossFit is at its core, it's community-based fitness. So it's guys and girls. It's like co-ed uh, exercise, Right. It's a one-hour class with a coach or instructor who takes you through the movements, teaches you some skill stuff, um, and then as a group, you go through like a, a really intense uh, exercise together. And I, I was lucky enough to see it done in a garage, and it's a small little model, and I was like, you know what? I could do this. Like, I could totally do this. Like, with the help and support of my family and friends and whatever, I, I knew I could do this. There's the athlete. Yeah, I felt real. Yeah, so I mean, it well, was. Well, there's the self worth because you knew mm-hmm. you could do it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was really, really clear to me that, uh, that this was what I was going to do. So, you know, I go, I go home. I tell, my, I tell this story. I go home. I'm standing at the island in my parents' kitchen. I'm 31 years old. I've been through all this shit, and they've been through all this shit that I've taken them through. And I'm like, hey, I know what I want to be. <laughs> like, I know exactly what I want to do now. And I can remember my dad. He goes, it's about fucking time. <laughs> and so I. I tell him like this is what we're gonna do, and my dad, my parents are rocks. I mean, like they are amazing people. They are always one hundred percent supportive, right? It's it's also what made them so easy for me to manipulate is because mm-hmm. they loved me so much, and so now I'm gonna follow through on this, and this is the real thing. Like, I need your help, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. So they get me uh, certified as a coach. I start kind of shadowing. Uh, I do like six months of kind of like an internship and uh, then they help me buy my first CrossFit gym. That sounds like it's expensive, but it's not. <clears throat> so I partner with the other guy. I become a third owner in this little tiny 1,000 square foot or 2,000 square foot gym. And uh, we run uh, CrossFit classes out of there for the next two years. Epic failure. It's a total failure. 
um, the, the partnership, uh, the business, it, it doesn't work. And, uh, but something that came from that was I meet my wife. Uh, I was introduced to her through some of the members of that so gym. You should, especially since you're married to this woman, you should correct yourself. It wasn't a failure. It was oh, part of the journey. It was just part of the journey. I love the it way was, he thinks. <laughs> it was part of the journey to yes. um, find your wife and and what you're what you're doing now. Right. It was the experience that was that brought you there. Yes. Yes. For sure. For sure. But that's you love know you. that's an important distinction to me because I think we can look at stuff like that when we use the word failure. And I don't believe in failure. I believe that there's learning experiences. There's this great quote I heard the other day. If, if you start into doing anything with the ultimate intention of knowing yourself better, you can never fail. Yeah. And ultimately, I think what you were doing is you were proving to yourself that you could be sober and be a business person for these couple of years. And once you prove that, your worth raised to the point where someone like who you're married to now would be interested in you. You attracted it. Yeah. It's yeah. part of the journey because had you not had that journey, had you not proven that to yourself, my guess is that your now wife would not be interested in you. For sure. It still blows my mind. Why, and we still talk about this. Uh, we've been together for over seven years now, and it still blows. What the hell was she thinking? You know, like this guy is like less than a couple years sober or still only a couple years sober when you meet him and uh but you're right i mean it, it was you know I, I was who i said i was i was living an honest and and uh and i was on a healthy path i i had a plan and i was you know living my dream and she was someone who who saw that and gave me a chance she herself was in med school and you know was one of these one of these lucky folks who she had a plan too, just, you know, when she was a little kid. <laughs> and so she just stuck to it. She mm-hmm. blew through high school, yeah. blew through college, going through med school. And uh, so we partner up and we, we break away from that business. We start our own gym. Uh, we've had that gym now for over six and a half years. And uh, it's, it's, it's in that we, we, have a, we have a baby together. We have a little five-year-old boy right now. His name's Oliver. He's the cutest little thing in the world. And uh, we also get custody of the child that I had abandoned. Wow. His mother is still, unfortunately, to our, to our knowledge, is still out and, and addicted. And uh, it's my wife who, after just being with me for about six months, she says, I can't be with a man who doesn't go after his kid. You have more to offer as a sober as a sober person than, than she does. So you got two choices. You either keep doing what you're doing or we're going after your, your son. And we'd only been together for six months. And, uh, she saw your worth more than you did. Yeah. I mean, for sure. So still, even after just a couple years of sobriety, I'm still kind of delusional and I'm still kind of lying to myself about like things like this. And you know, Oh no, it's probably okay over there. He's probably fine. So we go through a whole year-long court case. We get it's it's really hard mm-hmm. on us, and it's really difficult. And uh, but ultimately, we we take custody of of Kyler, and he was probably eight, and now he's fifteen. Wow! And we've had him ever since. And uh, I mean, time and time again, this is the type of person that I married. Like, it's it's a team effort. Like, it's also the type of person you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's. 
she's amazing. Um, hopefully she hears this. You can she play it for her. I'm sure she will, but yeah. what, I guess what I'm curious about is why you can't say that you're amazing. I'm amazing. I am amazing. Yeah, but do you believe it? That's yeah. the thing. I do. Good. But I also, you know, got to remain as humble as possible. You can. <laughs> you can be humble, but you have to remember that where your journey has taken you, that self-worth and self-esteem has been the primary thing that has taken you down into the dark places. True. So you have to remember that you are worthy. You've brought love into your life that you are worthy of. And everyone in your life sees that. So you need to start seeing that on a regular basis. And I know it's not the easiest thing to do for any of us. Yeah. But, you know, you deserve to be loved. You deserve to be happy. We all do. Yeah, I found a, I found a lot of happiness here. Um, you know, I'm surrounded by this, the wonderful communities that, like, CrossFit offers. So, you know, we've got, we've got this awesome gym, you know, who, who's super supportive of both Lauren and I's um, other endeavors. So, so it's at that gym that we start the, the Barbell Saves Project. And uh, it's as a way to just give back to the community. Um, you know, being, being of service is a, is a really a big part of kind of, you know, the program and, and things like that. Um, even though I'm kind of removed from all that, uh, I still obviously find value in helping others uh, who are struggling with drugs and alcohol. So I'm going out to meetings and I'm getting guys and I'm bringing them over to the gym and I'm taking them through classes. And it's, it's a, it's just a, it, it's a loose kind of undefined type thing that we're doing. And uh, a friend of mine becomes a member of the gym and she's a professor of social work at ASU. She's also in recovery and she sees the name up on the board uh, at the gym. And she's like, what is this? What is this all about? So I explained to her the program, you know, how we're providing uh, community classes or for people that are in recovery from drugs and alcohol. She's like, this, this is amazing. She's like, we need to go and talk to ASU about this. So at no point at that time did I think that this could be anything bigger than a program that was uh, ran inside of my current gym. Uh, Lindsay saw it as something that could be bigger and impact more. And uh, I'd already kind of made a commitment to trying to help as many people as I could. So that's kind of always been just the simple guiding force. What will allow me to help as many people as possible? It's also something that gets you in a lot of trouble. So we go down to ASU and we meet the director of social work down there. We, I, I stand there, for, I sit there for 15 minutes covered in sweat, trying to explain to her, you know, what I'm, what I'm up to. And uh, she's like, oh, okay, this is uh, very interesting. She's like, I want to be a part of this. She's like, I want to, uh, what was the word that she used? I want to submit a, a, a whatever for your board. And I'm like, oh, we don't have a board. <laughs> and so, so right then and there, you know, we, we create a board. And, and then just, it just starts falling in line, you know, opportunity after opportunity. We, we're now uh, community partners with the School of Social Work at ASU, which allows us a lot of opportunities to, you know, get in front of other existing organizations. And we start kind of pitching this whole idea of, you know, why don't you guys bring your individuals that you have at your clinics over to the gym and we'll start running classes for, for those individuals. The model's gone through all kinds of different iterations over time. And uh, where we're at today is we partnered up with uh, Community Medical Services, which is a local business here, uh, started here in 1980. They've been around for a long time. They offer uh, 
amongst other things like uh, MAT treatment, medical assisted treatment, like methadone, Suboxone, things like that. It's more, more predominantly for folks that are in recovery from opioids. But uh, meeting that, that CEO of that company, um, you know, he says, I love what you're doing. And it would be so cool to see you have your own space, right? Your own gym that's designated solely for this purpose. And I was like, yeah, that, that, that would be amazing. Let's do that. <laughs> so he's like, we're going to have this 30,000 square foot building coming up here uh, shortly. Um, half of it will be used for the new CMS location. And I'd like to see how we could get, you know, a, a gym just for the Barbell Saves Project. So true to his word, come back. It's been a year. And he says that building is going up. Let's, let's do that gym thing. And I'm like, you know, we've, we've been busting our butts. You know, we're a small nonprofit. We're doing like the turkey trot kind of 5Ks. We're host, hosting events and we're trying to raise as much money right. as we can. And then uh, I'm like, but we can't afford it. <laughs> like we don't have any money to do this. So this is, um, I want to say this is in the middle of COVID. And he goes to the state and pitches a concept for like a wellness center where we do job placement stuff. Uh, we do the, we do the, the facility itself where we're going to have, you know, interaction or collaborations with all these other just organizations. And, uh, you know, you got to give it to the state. They were like, okay, let's do it. And they granted us a 12 month pilot. So they built the facility for us. They gave us the funds to build the facility, outfit it with, uh, all the nicest equipment. It's, top of the line it's super nice so i feel like we're straying a little bit because i want to sure can you give us the elevator speech of what the barbell project is and what they do today sure so yes so so here we are in this facility right which is looks like a crossfit gym it's seven thousand square feet you come in for a class um we're going to still do one hour class we've got men and women they're all different ranges of what you would say like sobriety the only uh the only requirement is that you have 48 hours or longer of proclaimed sobriety. So as long as you've got 48 hours, you are welcome and you are wanted. Um, so now you've got, say, 20 individuals, all different ranges of sobriety. Uh, you've got me as your instructor. I'm going to take you guys through a warm-up. Then we're going to gather together in a circle. We're going to go uh, like do some sort of like intentional icebreaker where we introduce ourselves to the group. Maybe say our first names, the city that you're born in. And then, you know, if you could have any dream job right now, if I could just snap my fingers and give you a dream job, what would it be? You know, and it's an intentional type question, right. but these are the types of questions that we ask. Everybody gets an opportunity to share. We're really trying to drive home and establish community, friendships, you know, accountability, like all these types okay. of things. So it's, so it's intentional. Gotcha. Something that you wouldn't find like at a spin class, right? Like they're not intentionally making you guys meet each other so that you guys form right. a relationship. But that's, that's the intentional part. Then we take them through a, like a weightlifting component or something like that. Like maybe we'll back squat and stuff. And then we'll do a, a Metcon or another like high intensity type workout, right? Okay. Where they might do like 20 minutes of burpees and wall balls right. and row and stuff like that. And then we'll gather back together and do a cool down. Maybe talk more about, you know, uh, some of the challenges in the workout and, you know, how can you use those kind of challenges in your day-to-day -day life. It's very intentional and it's really more about, um, it's that same magic that I found, um, but with much more intention. It's so, kind of like therapy in a way, yeah, right? For sure. They, they can talk about what they've been through. You guys can share your experiences and in the process, get a nice, good workout. Because it, to me, you know, there, you have to pick your addictions and that's a healthy addiction. For sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we stay clear intentionally of like any, any type of programmatic 
speak or talk. We don't want to be lumped in with any one category because there are several. There's so much. So, I mean, we are a place where you can, if you're in recovery from drugs and alcohol, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you just got out of prison or if you, you know, you're regular in an AA meeting or your CA meeting. It doesn't matter. You, we come in, we're together, we're all banded under that one, that one united front, and we, we exercise together and we suffer a little bit together. Okay, yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's really, it's, it seems simple, but it's incredibly powerful what it can do to change people's lives. Some of the things that we've already seen are, you know, obviously people are coming in and just after being open for almost three months now, we've got people losing 20 pounds. We've got people that are diabetic going to pre-diabetic, being taken off of medications, things that not even I was anticipating such, you know, remarkable outcomes so quickly. But there's also a difference because I guess you could say that about any CrossFit facility or any workout program, right? But you seem it seems to me like the barbell project has a more holistic approach maybe for sure um speak to me about in terms because you mentioned the 48 hours sober and that sort of thing speak to me what sort of effect because i think this is is a beautiful concept you have and i think it'd be it'd be great if more facilities uh, rehab facilities were partaking in something like this because i think you build self-esteem and a sense of accomplishment through any form of exercise, for sure. CrossFit or what have you. So what kind of results do you see specifically with those who are in recovery, are addicts, whatever lingo you want to use or whatever stage they're in? Yeah, so I mean, aside from like the, the obvious markers of like health, right, right, the, 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 the weight loss and, and those types of things, some of these things just aren't measurable. It's just you've got to take it on their testimony. You know, you got to say that, you know, I'm happier now because I've been participating in this. And these come from people that have been sober for 12 years. Like, this is what I've been missing. You know, I've been doing all these other things, but I haven't been paying attention to the impact that my physical body has on my emotional brain. Like, there's a major impact that exercise has on the mind. And that's why our motto is healing the body to save the mind. So these are things that you you can tell people over and over again that you know if you exercise you'll feel better nobody gives a shit <laughs> so you gotta drag them through it you gotta you they gotta get them by the hand teaches, like what you teaches, about, right yeah you gotta take them by the hand you gotta make it fun you gotta show them that they can do it um and then they'll start to they they all like light up you know and they they can't help it do you, you can see, see the, the cycle smiles. do you see the cycle here you had nobody who did that for you for your self-worth and self-esteem, but yet you're the person who is doing that for other people. For sure. Wow. For sure. And that's my, that's, that's, that's what lights me up. That's what gets me going is, you know, is connecting people to opportunities to better themselves. I'm a connector. Like I, I, that's why I want to know what you want to be because I want to help you get there. I want, you know, that's, we don't just stop at, here's the exercise. I, I want you to tell me that you want to be a dentist because I got a friend, <laughs> you know, right. I got a guy, right. that sort of thing. And that's, that's where I really light up is, is trying to help people. If you want to, you know, oh, I, I would probably go to school for culinary school. It's like, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's dig through it. Let's get on the computer and let's figure out what it takes to get you there. So it doesn't just stop with just, Hey, this is cool. This is fun to exercise, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's this networking of, you know, in friendships that get created and, it's complicated, but it's simple. It's simple for people to get who are connected and like, but when you're, when you're first getting sober, what you have to realize is you have burnt every bridge. No one 
gives a shit about you because you have screwed them over, stolen their money, slept with their wives. Like, no one cares about you. You don't have any connections. You don't know anyone. Yes, your self-worth is low. Yeah, you have low self-esteem, but you have realistic obstacles. You have no money, and you don't know anybody that cares about you. And so here we are. We care. I care about you here in the gym. I care about you getting healthy, but I also care about you outside of the gym. I want to know how do we better your life tomorrow? Like, do we get you enrolled in school? Do you want to be a physical therapist? How do we do that for you? You know, I want to answer those types of tough questions. It's not just about exercise. It's about being a real community. That's why I said it's holistic. I think, and, and this is kind of playing off what Robin said, but I think in the Barbell Project, you have created a system for discovering self-worth. For sure. And I think that's really powerful. I'm going to use that. So, yeah, no, for sure. That is. I, I just trademarked it right thank after you. I yeah. said it. So. <laughs> no, no, no. But, yeah. I, but I think that that's really what you're doing because you're talking about that holistic and you're talking about making those connections and robin's right you know you're making these connections that maybe weren't available to you or that you cut off yeah if you will i think that's probably a better way to put it that you cut off um so because he didn't feel he was worthy yeah and i think i didn't even look because i didn't feel i was worthy yeah. yep. and that's a lot of us right i mean there's yes. so many people out there sober or not you're, you're already limiting yourself to what you're capable of because of some belief that you yeah. have that you're not good enough or smart enough or rich enough or whatever. You've got some reason why you can't do it. And for us, people in recovery, it's, it's the matter of life and death, though. You know, if, that, if you keep going down that, that hole, you know, that low self-esteem, that loneliness, you're going to pick up again. And that's, that's what... Uh, that's what elevates this whole thing, you know, from the regular CrossFit gym that I have. Like, I love helping those people in the same way. I want them to transform right. their lives and, and see that. But over here with the Barbell Saves, we're talking about people that are, that are, that are playing with fire. Like, if, if they go back out, I mean, we all hear about this fentanyl stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. this shit's not a joke. Like, right. that, didn't even, that didn't even exist when I was using drugs. So that's terrifying to me. The next time that these people use, it could kill them like that's just the reality of it so yeah there's a you know they've they've tried to implement exercise time and time again at different you know institutions and things like that but it doesn't get the level of professionalism or gravity or like it, it just it's doesn't not get holistic yeah but it's also just not prioritized it's like it's just some watered down lame ass version of fitness sort of like pe at school yeah for sure yeah. right there's there's no like yeah, so that's yeah. the difference between barbell saves. It's just, it, to, to explain it to other people, yes, it's, it's a lot like CrossFit. We take a lot of the more difficult, dangerous skill movements out of it intentionally as to not uh, overcomplicate or deter anyone from coming in. We got some really, really, you know, uh, individuals that are in a really rough point in their life, both physically and mentally. So we, we, we cater to that. Um, and we build from there. So you might have multiple levels of programming right. where you have a beginner's level and a kind of an intermediate, and then it kind of gets more advanced from there. Um, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really, really helpful. Uh, obviously, all the past experience that I've had. But that being said, this barbell saves thing is just, it's just something different. It's never been really attempted on this level with the facility, with the coaching staff. Like the, the amount of um, care <laughs> that goes into it 
this is this is a first you know and and these people feel it from the moment they walk in the door their draws drop they're like holy shit and like talk about self-values like feeling like wow this is ours like we get this and this doesn't this doesn't cost us we matter yeah that was the intention and that's where that's where uh that's where nick and i uh, the ceo from cmo that's what we wanted to see like what if we really just instead of giving them some shitty jump ropes and a couple pink weights or something what happens if we give them the world like what if we really just show them that we give a shit and see if that doesn't uh resonate with them and it does it, it not no surprise but it is a surprise <laughs> like you know you got to give a little sometimes yeah. you're living so, yeah. your life in service man yeah wow yeah so it's been it's been remarkable so um, how do people find out more about this how they can help out what can we do to get the word out about this yeah, uh, I mean, spreading the word right now is is really important. We, you can find us, and if you want to see what this looks like in action, go to our Instagram at the Barbell Saves Project, um, and you can see it. You know, the actual video footage of what it looks like inside the gym, inside the space. You can see the 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 activity in motion. Um, but if you go to our website, uh, uh you can you can donate there. You can learn more about it. You can contact us if you uh, want to volunteer or if you want to just you know, learn more. Or if you personally are affected by drugs and alcohol, maybe in, in your own life or uh, a loved one's life, then, then please reach out and, and email me directly. That's, that's totally acceptable. Um, but yeah, the program for, for those, it's, it's absolutely free. And it will always be free to those uh, that, that use the service. We are, we are right around the corner from becoming what is known as a community service agency. So we will be able to uh, bill an insurance like access like for our services here in the near future. future. And that will allow us to be sustainable. Um, and that in itself also has never been done before. We're a peer organization. So that means that all of us, the coaching staff, we all have uh, lived experience, right? So I mean, we've got an amazing coaching staff with just years and years of experience. I mean, we got a, we got a guy that played in the NFL for two years. Like, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're at the highest level of our game of excellence of, of coaching and, and training, and we're giving it all for free to uh, this particular uh, segment of our, of our country who really need us right now. And uh, yeah, so reach out however, however you can help. Uh, we need it. So. Wow. You know, I'm grateful, as I said, that I get to meet so many interesting people from all walks of life in here. And I'm really grateful that you came in today, Rob, to share your story. Because as you said to me, you don't really share your story on shows. Everyone goes after the Barbell Saves Project. But I'm always about the why. I want to know why. And I think you explained it beautifully. So I cannot thank you enough for being here with Kirk and I and sharing everything today. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it it wasn't as nerve wracking as I thought, but I, I appreciate the, the tough. I'll try questions. harder next time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't shy away from this sort of thing. I, I really enjoy investigating, you know, yeah. not only other people's stories, but my own story. And, you know, I'm always learning and I'm always, you know, I can always take away something from, from giving a little bit uh, of myself. So I just appreciate your guys' like level of interest, but also just your your concern for me. Your story is important, man. <laughs> it's important. It. It's an important story and it, and it's important to drill down, I think, because the deeper we go, the more we can connect um, to someone else because our stories are so 
even though they're different on the surface, I think the, the deeper we dig, the more commonality we find, and I think that allows for the kind of connection that might make someone feel more comfortable reaching out to you. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. Well, thanks, guys. Thank well, guys, you. as always, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.